Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's Peter Schiff Show podcast is sponsored by Wondery's Business Movers. In the newest episode, they explore how the reformulated new Coke back in 1985 disrupted Coca-Cola's public perception and it was pulled from the shelves within months. Listen to the newest season of Business Movers on Apple, iPad, Spotify, or listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. The Dow Jones managed to make a new all-time record high today and finished out the day with a small gain. The other indexes did not make a new high. In fact, the other indexes were all down on the week. The NASDAQ was the only index of the big four to finish the week in the black. S&P 500... NASDAQ, Russell 2000, they finished in the red. But, you know, the big action today and on the week was in the commodity market and stocks that are linked to commodities, generally uh, industrial metals, uh, agricultural commodities, although oil did have a pullback today back below $60 a barrel. As I said, I thought we would consolidate a little bit around $60 before moving higher. But the big action in industrial metals Take a look at copper in particular, up about 4.5% on the day. Copper closed at $4.08 per pound. Now, the all-time record high for copper was set back in 2011. We got to $4.50 a pound. So we're almost there. In fact, I think we're going to shatter that record before the end of the year. You know, if you have any of the old pennies, the ones that were minted prior to 1982, right? That's 1981 or earlier. Those pennies are honest. They're actually made of copper. And at today's copper price, the penny has about two and a half cents worth of copper inside it. So the metallic value of the penny, not even counting uh, the bit of zinc that's in there, uh, but it's it's 90% copper. And just that copper alone is worth two and a half cents. I think by the end of the year, the penny could actually be worth a nickel, the melt value. 
Now, I know there actually is a law that I think makes it illegal to melt these pennies down, but you don't actually have to melt them down to own the copper. I mean, if you buy a penny and hold it, you're holding real copper. That is, at least if you get a pre-1982 penny. Seems to me that there's not much downside. The penny will never be worth less than a penny because you can spend it. It's currently worth two and a half cents based on the metallic value. And I think it's going to be 5X uh, by the end of the year. In fact, maybe by the over the next three or four years, the penny could be worth a dime. Of course, eventually, the penny is going to be worth a dollar. And in fact, that's about all the dollar is really worth. If you go back to what the dollar was worth 100 years ago, it's barely worth a penny now uh, when you look at its purchasing power. But it's not just the commodity prices that are moving higher. Interest rates, long-term bond yields continue to ratchet up. It's almost a daily occurrence. The yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury now at one spot three four five. That's the highest it's been uh, post-pandemic. The yield on the 30-year hit 2.155 on the day. We closed at 2.14%. Again, these are still ridiculously low yields, but it's not the yield that's important. It's the trajectory. Look at what's happening. There is no reason to believe that this acceleration in bond yields is going to stop. I mean, the only way it's going to stop is if the Federal Reserve backs up the truck uh, with QE and starts buying these things like crazy, which eventually they're going to do. But if you look at their balance sheet so far, they're holding off. I mean, the balance sheet is still around $7.5 trillion, but it hasn't had any meaningful increase recently, which is why these bond yields keep rising. Also, more proof that it's inflation, not economic growth, that's driving commodity prices and bond yields. Yesterday, we got the weekly unemployment claims, and the numbers were well above estimates. In fact, we even had sharp upward revisions to the prior week. The prior week, the original report was 793,000 jobs lost. That was revised up to 848,000 jobs lost. The consensus for the most recent week was for a loss of just 768,000 jobs, which is still a big number. Instead, we lost 861,000 jobs. So they thought that we were going to have a smaller job loss than what was originally reported. Instead, we sharply upwardly revised the prior week. And then this week or the more current week came in even higher than that upward revision. So again, this is not just inflation, it's stagflation. But the biggest irony is that the reason commodities like copper are going up so much, and you have stocks like Freeport MacBrand that was up almost 10% on the day to a new 52-week high, stock is 37.5. You know, that stock was under 5 bucks in March of last year during the uh, pandemic sell-off. The reason for this is inflation. Inflation is the driver. It's not economic growth. It's inflation. That's why commodity prices are rising. That's why bond yields are rising. The biggest irony of it is the only thing that's not rising right now is gold. And to a lesser extent, silver. Both were up today, but barely. Gold was up about $7.5. And I think silver maybe about $0.18. Cents. Silver was quite a bit higher earlier in the day. I mean, I saw it up better than $0.40. Cents. 
Uh, but both gold and silver closed off the highs, although I never really saw gold up more than much more than 12 bucks on the day. So despite all this inflation, no money is going into the precious metals, which you would think would be the hedges against inflation. The question is, why is that? You know, and there are a lot of people that are quick to say it's because of Bitcoin, right? Gold is no longer an inflation hedge. Everybody is buying Bitcoin instead of gold. And that's why, in fact, they say people are dumping their Bitcoin to buy gold. And so that's why it's going down. In fact, as I'm recording this podcast, Bitcoin is better than $56,000 a coin. You heard that right. 56000 Who knows? Maybe it'll be 60000 by the time anybody actually listens to this podcast. I have no idea. But believe me, Bitcoin going up is not the real reason that gold is languishing despite the fact that a lot of people are trying to sell that. In fact, Jeff Gunlock uh, on Twitter, and I don't really follow Jeff too much anymore. You know, he blocked me a long time ago, uh, so I don't really pay attention to him anymore. Um, But I read about his tweet. That's how I knew about it. And uh, he basically tweeted that even though he's still a long-term bull on gold, he's basically now conceding that the new inflation hedge is Bitcoin and not gold. And of course, that tweet... Uh, merely fueled uh, the, the the stampede into Bitcoin. But I don't think people are buying Bitcoin as an inflation hedge. Now, there are some people who are, right? But the vast majority of people who are buying Bitcoin are not buying it as an inflation hedge. They're buying it to speculate on Bitcoin. They think the price of Bitcoin is going way up. It's not a bunch of people looking for a hedge. They're a bunch of risk takers that want to make a lot of money. They think the price of Bitcoin is going way up and that's why they're buying it. And that is the mood that we have right now because nobody is actually worried about inflation. That is the real reason that gold is not going up. People assume that inflation isn't a problem because the Fed claims it's not a problem. And they also incorrectly assume that if inflation ever does become a problem, well, the Fed is going to solve it by raising interest rates. And I've talked about that on this podcast. There are all these research notes going around now. I see them all the time about how rates are going to be rising faster than everybody thinks. The Fed's going to be raising rates. They're going to start tapering uh, you know, their QE program. And this is supposedly going to benefit the dollar. And this is going to hurt gold. Meanwhile, the dollar is not going up. I mean, the dollar index was down today. It didn't make a new low. Although if you just take a look at some of the currencies in the dollar index, look at the Australian dollar, that was up one and a quarter percent today. That hit a new 52-week high. But more importantly, look at the Chinese yuan. The dollar broke below six and a half yuan. It closed today at six spot four five seven seven, down about a half a percent on the day. This is the lowest the dollar has been in years against the yuan. It's not a record low yet, but we're going to get there. But this should be very troubling. Remember, we buy a lot of stuff from China and all that stuff is going to be a lot more expensive when the dollar really tanks against the yuan. That's what's going to happen. And of course, a stronger yuan is also going to help put more upward pressure on all the commodities that the Chinese buy because those commodities are cheaper for the Chinese when the purchasing power of their currency goes up. But also, if you look at um, other indicators of inflation fears, they're not there, right? Nobody is worried, despite the fact that inflation is pushing up commodity prices uh, and pushing up bond yields. Investors are very complacent when it comes to their concern. 
And so that is why you're not seeing the move up in gold. You are seeing the move up in Bitcoin because it's a total different animal. It's a different investor class. Yes, you do have a couple of high profile funds and companies uh, that have bought Bitcoin, now Tesla. But by the way, even though Bitcoin made a new record high again today, Tesla dropped. Tesla has been steadily going down ever since they announced that they bought Bitcoin, despite the fact that Bitcoin is steadily rising. And that's probably because the bulk of the Tesla share base, shareholder base, they may not necessarily be fans of Bitcoin. And so that might be a, another reason to sell a highly overvalued stock. So we'll see. But in fact, Elon Musk, he put out another tweet. Or it wasn't a tweet, it was an interview. And then a lot of people were tweeting about it or reporting about it. But he said something, and I think I'm quoting him verbatim, that Bitcoin is almost as fake as fiat. Elon Musk put out a quote today. In fact, in an interview earlier today, Elon Musk said, and I think I'm quoting him exactly, quote, Bitcoin is almost as BS as fiat money. And when this was reported, and I read a lot of news stories about this and attributing the gain today in Bitcoin, or at least part of the gain, to this quote, another uh, uh, positive statement supposedly by Musk uh, that Bitcoin is better than fiat. But if you actually listen to what he said, it's better than fiat because it's almost as BS as fiat, meaning it's not as BS, it's BS, but it's BS to a lesser degree than fiat. So in other words, Musk is saying that both Bitcoin and fiat are BS. So you might as well just buy Bitcoin because it's less BS than fiat. Now, I disagree with that because I actually think that Bitcoin is more BS than fiat. I agree that they're both BS, but I just disagree as to which one is the greater BS because at least fiat is a medium of exchange. It is a unit of account. Uh, it is legal tender. You know, and there are a lot of things that you could do right now with fiat money and governments do require that you pay your taxes with it. It's not a store of value. It's not real money. It's fiat. So it's not a good long-term store of value. But day to day, I mean, it's relatively stable. I mean, it's going down. Now, I think it's going to start to go down a lot faster. But at least in the recent past, the daily stability has been fine as far as transactions. But Bitcoin has none of these attributes. So Bitcoin is not a medium of exchange, unit of account. It's not legal tender. The government doesn't uh, require taxes to be paid in it. So Bitcoin is even more BS than fiat. Gold, on the other hand, isn't BS at all. Gold is real money. So to the extent that you agree with Musk and think that Bitcoin is the lesser of the two BSs, why settle for the lesser of two BS alternatives to the real thing that is not BS, which is gold? Gold is real money. Currency that's backed by gold is real currency. Currency that's backed by nothing is fiat. Bitcoin, which is just a digital token, is backed by nothing. So it is digital fiat. And in fact, you know, I've been talking about the Bitcoin hodlers, right? These are the people that are holding on to Bitcoin and never sell. Well, I don't really want to call them hodlers anymore. I want to refer to them as collectors because that's really what they are. They are collecting Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a digital token. It's not an asset in the sense that, you know, it's not an investment asset, doesn't pay rent, doesn't pay interest, doesn't pay dividends. It's not a commodity. You can't do anything with it. Uh, it's not a currency. 
because it doesn't even function as a currency. Even if you wanted to use it, it doesn't work. So what is it? It's a digital token. And so people that are hoarding them, they're just collecting them. Just like you would collect, you know, stamps or baseball cards, right? Uh, you People collect Bitcoin. Now, there are other people who trade Bitcoin, right? They don't keep a collection. They just like the volatility. They buy and sell, buy and sell. So those are the two categories. You have people who want to trade in these digital tokens to speculate in them. And then you have collectors who are trying to, ha- you know, have a Bitcoin collection that they think is going to be so valuable in the future. The problem is Bitcoin collections are never going to be valuable because from a collector's perspective, they ain't rare. I mean, there's going to be 21 million identical Bitcoin. So how much is your collection worth if so many other people have a collection? And at least if you have a baseball card or stamp, I mean, you could take it out. You could show it to people. You can impress your friends. They're kind of neat, right? But how are you going to impress your friends by showing them your Bitcoin wallet? I mean, you can impress them now because you can show them how much the Bitcoin are worth. But in the future, if they're not worth very much and there's just a Bitcoin, I mean, not many people are going to, you know, really be proud of their collection of Bitcoin. And again, anybody can have a collection because you can have a few Satoshis and that's all your collection could be. But, you know, you can have 2.1 quadrillion of those things. So these are not going to be rare. So people who are building up these Bitcoin collections are going to have a collection of nothing. But right now, people haven't figured it out, so the price of Bitcoin can keep on rising. But ultimately, what I think may be the pin that pricks this bubble, the golden pin might be gold itself that pricks this bubble. In fact, I've speculated that for some time. I mean, people are now writing off gold for dead. Bitcoin has made it obsolete. You know, Bitcoin is the new inflation hedge. It's the new store of value. And that's why gold's going down. Nobody needs it anymore. Well, when the big guys, the real money, when they finally wake up to the reality of the inflation threat and they really want an inflation hedge, they're not going to look at Bitcoin. They're going to buy gold and they're going to rush to it in a big way. And then the price of gold is going to really take off. And that may be the pin that pricks the Bitcoin bubble. In the newest episode of Wondry's Business Movers, they're going to explore one of the biggest marketing blunders, the introduction of new Coke and what it did to Coca-Cola's public perception. Everybody knows Coca-Cola as a multi-billion dollar corporation, but not everybody remembers that at one point the company tried something different. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It was back in 1985, Coca-Cola changed their recipe to what is now called New Coke. 
However, it quickly got a lot of negative feedback from its loyal customers who were happy with the old Coke. And within a matter of months, they had to backtrack and come up with Coca-Cola Classic. In fact, this is actually used now as a case study in how not to launch a new product and the cautionary tale of an out-of-touch chief executive, Roberto Gorzetta, who went against conventional wisdom and played a dangerous game with the company's signature product. But the real story of Roberto Gorzetta, his improbable rise and controversial decision, started decades before the launch of New Coke in the midst of a violent political revolution in Havana, Cuba. And that's the real story that you'll learn when you listen to part one of Wondry's Business Movers. I watched it. In fact, I finished listening to it just before I did this podcast. And again, I really enjoy this format. It's really a throwback to the olden days of radio where people didn't even have television and they relied on radio for entertainment because there's a lot of uh, background uh, stuff going on in this production that really makes the whole thing extremely enjoyable. And again, it, it makes me think about what it must have been like uh, when people were huddled around a living room standing at a tiny radio uh, for their family entertainment. And you can listen to the newest season of Business Movers on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Now, while I'm talking about bubbles, I want to talk about one that already popped, and that was the bubble in GameStop, right? That bubble didn't really last very long. GameStop shares, they got as high as a little over $500 per share in the pre-market. Again, never quite made it above the 500 level in New York Stock Exchange trading hours. The high we got was 483, but we closed today at $40.59. So better than a 90% decline from the peak. Uh, The decline is not over as far as I'm concerned. This stock is headed lower than 40, but for all practical purposes, the bubbles popped in that stock. And you're a lot of people who are bag holders that are already sitting with some GameStop that they paid $100, $200, $300, $400 or more for. And now they're holding uh, you know, this company that they way overpaid for. Well, the reason I really want to talk about it today is because I want to talk about the congressional hearings that occurred yesterday. And if you didn't see this, you can go look at it on YouTube. That's where I caught a lot of it. But it's very frustrating to me, of course, to see all of this grandstanding uh, by these politicians that want to pretend that they care so much about the little guy and the average investor. And I think the most heat uh, was brought down on Robinhood, you know, and they have the, you know, the CEO founder of Robinhood up there. And I mean, it seems like there was more anger at him. And a lot of the anger, too, was even for Uh, you know, stopping the trading, which obviously ended up saving people a lot of money because any more people who would have bought these stocks just would have been even more losses. But they really seemed upset about the fact that they were getting payment for order flow and not charging people commissions. And therefore, they were ripping uh, their customers off because they weren't telling them about the money they were making for the order flow as they were providing a free trading service. I mean, clearly though, most people know that you can't get something for nothing, that there needs to be a way for Robinhood to make money. And it seems that what these congressional representatives might wanna do is maybe ban the ability of Robinhood 
to do this, in which case they would have to start charging commissions. And in fact, it's my fear, and I can tell, you know, the writing is on the wall here, and I've, I've seen this movie before. They are going to use what happened with GameStop and Robinhood. They are going to come down with a whole series of new regulations that are really going to clobber the little guy and make it far more expensive for him to trade. And in fact, they also had the guy on there who was an individual investor who was one of the original guys on Reddit who bought a bunch of GameStop stock when it was really cheap. And, you know, he helped to drum up a lot of the uh, the buying and a lot of the momentum. And this guy on paper made a fortune. And as far as I can tell, he lost a fortune too. I mean, he didn't take most of his chips off the table. So as he was touting the stock, he at least wasn't dumping it. So he wasn't really pumping and dumping. He was pumping and pumping and pumping. He forgot to dump. I think he sold a little bit, but maybe he got too caught up in his own hype. And so this guy... Uh, you know, wrote it back down, but it seems like he might be made to be the fall guy as well because he was a registered rep. And now they want to hammer him and his employer too for having this registered rep giving investment advice uh, without, you know, knowing the suitability, which again, I talk about that on this podcast. The reason that I don't give out individual stocks as a recommendation is because I am not allowed to recommend stocks on a podcast because the FINRA rules, since I have a license as well, I can't recommend an individual stock unless I know that the person who is receiving the recommendation is a suitable investor for that particular stock. Now, I have no idea who listens to my podcast, so I can't just give out a blanket recommendation without knowing who might take it. So that's why, you know, I I can talk about my funds and tell people to read prospectuses uh, and decide for themselves because there's a prospectus there. And so they're going to, you know, going to get warned if they go out and buy my mutual funds. I'm allowed to tell people to buy gold because gold's not a security. So I don't necessarily have to know if gold is suitable for you. Although I think gold and silver are pretty much suitable for everybody. The problem might be how much you buy. I mean, obviously, if you buy too much of it, then that's not going to be suitable. But I always talk about having 5 to 10% of your portfolio in physical gold and silver. And I pretty much think that that's good advice for anybody, right? But when you come out and recommend a particular stock uh, that may be very speculative and does fall within the scope of FINRA regulation, you know, a guy like me can't make the recommendation. And that's why whenever I mention a stock in passing, as an example, like I mentioned Freeport McMoran earlier today, and by the way, I own that stock. Um, and, uh, but I'm not recommending it. And the fact that I own it is not a recommendation to anybody to buy it. I mentioned it just as an example of what's happening to copper stocks, but I can't do it because I'm licensed. Now there are other people that have podcasts that have investment podcasts that are not licensed by FINRA. So they're kind of free to say whatever they want because they're not going to violate some regulation, but I can tell by what the congressmen and women were saying they are preparing, I think, to go after the employer and maybe force them to make whole all these individual investors on Robinhood that lost all this money buying GameStop because they're going to say, hey, you had your representative out there recommending this stock without knowing the suitability. 
Because what could happen is all of these individual investors can now file an arbitration. Maybe they can file an arbitration against this guy's employer because it's FINRA firm. You don't even have to be a customer. You can still file the arbitration. And of course, these are all small losses, right? Somebody, maybe they lost $1,000, $2,000, $5,000. There's no way this company can afford to defend all these individual claims. It's not a class action. They're individual suits. They cost nothing to file because the lawyers take them on contingency. And, and so this is going to be a huge shakedown. Uh, I think uh, they're going to be writing out lots of checks for all these losses, but also the government is going to be coming to this rescue, supposedly. It really bothered me to watch the people like AOC, you know, talking about how, you know, Wall Street is ripping off the little guy and how these big investors have an unfair advantage over the little guy and, you know, trying to say it's not fair, you know, that, you know, why should uh, the big traders have an advantage? I mean, the main advantage they have is they have more experience. I mean, now, is that fair? You know, if I, again, if I go to a poker tournament with guys that are professional players, I mean, it's a level playing field, but, um, you know, I'm not going to win because I don't play enough poker. I mean, I saw a guy gave a good example on CNBC today. Look, you know, I can play golf with Tiger Woods, right? He, I mean, it's fair. It's the same course. I could use the same clubs that he uses. I could use the same ball. I can even have the same caddy give me advice. But he's going to kick my butt because he's just a much better golfer than I am. I can't expect to play golf as well as Tiger Woods, but that's not unfair. But if I'm going to start trading in my spare time on my Robin Hood act and I'm going to trade against professionals, how am I going to win? I mean, these guys are making millions of dollars a year. They're doing this for a living for a reason. <laughs> these guys that, you know, are, you know, Uber drivers who are buying and selling stocks between fares, you know, while they're in their cars. I mean, they're not going to beat these guys that have all these machines all over the place that have been doing this for years. But somehow the congressmen are acting like it's not fair that these professional traders somehow have an advantage over the little guy when, you know, why don't they uh, apply that same analogy to, to sports and say it's not fair that Tiger Woods has an advantage over, you know, amateur, you know, uh, golfers. But the part of it that really makes me the, the maddest is the fact that I know for a fact how much damage the U.S. government has done to the small investor. I've spoken about this at this podcast. You know, when I first started as a broker, I was taking small accounts, right? Five, $10,000 accounts. I took those accounts. We don't take them anymore. No full service brokerage firms take those accounts anymore because they can't afford it. It is just so expensive. The regulatory cost is so high. Most firms have a 50,000, 100,000, $200,000 minimum. Now those are full service firms. Sure, Robinhood will take a $5,000 account. They'll take a $500 account because there's no human interaction and they don't give any advice, right? It's the giving of advice that is so uh, expensive now. All of the hoops that you need to jump through, all of the compliance that needs to already be in place before you can give recommendations to your clients, the only way a brokerage firm can afford it is if they're giving recommendations to wealthy clients that have a lot of money. So in that respect, the wealthy investor does have an advantage over the little guy because the wealthy investor can afford professional help. The little guy can't. But whose fault is that? That's the government's fault. You know, I mean, I used to really like taking small accounts. 
I mean, if we didn't have all these regulations, if and we didn't have all the AML and KYC and all this stuff, if you could just open up a brokerage account, real simple, well, I mean, we take we we take five thousand dollar accounts. I take a thousand dollar account. I wouldn't care. You know, we would help all these people because you know I would invest in the relationships. And even if we didn't make that much money on the accounts, at least we wouldn't lose money. But if we opened up a $5,000 account, we would lose a lot of money. So we're not in the business of losing money. So we have to pass. We raise the minimums. Um, and no, now, if you're a small investor, you can still go to my website, uh, Europac Funds, EPAC Funds, right? EPACFunds.com. And you can go to my website. And for 2500 bucks, you can buy one of my funds on your own. Right. I mean, you have to do the reading yourself. You read the prospectus, decide what one you want. I mean, you're not getting any individualized help from a representative because we really can't afford it. But you can help yourself and you can buy my funds through my website. But if you want to work with an advisor who's going to help you, you know, twenty five hundred bucks, we can't afford to do it thanks to the U.S. government. But there's all sorts of ways the government really screws over the small investor with all these securities laws and regulations. I know one in particular is these private placements. I mean, private placements, if you want to invest in a private deal, um, you know, there's so much regulatory requirement. I mean, I've done a bunch of these in the past. I haven't done that many recently, although I've invested in a bunch of them myself and I've actually done extremely well. It's kind of crazy how well some of these things have done. Uh, but, you know, when you do them, you have to have a very high minimum. Generally, my minimum has been 50 grand on a private placement, which automatically eliminates the little guy, right? Because he can't invest uh, 50,000. I remember the first private placement I did was to short the subprime market in 2006. And, you know, the minimum to get into the hedge fund was $100,000, which is actually a low minimum for a hedge fund. A lot of hedge funds won't take an account as small as 100 grand, but I did. Um, but I wouldn't take a guy for five or 10,000. And when I first started, I didn't have nearly as many clients and I had a lot of smaller clients. So the vast majority of my clients, even if they had the hundred grand, it was too much to risk into the hedge fund. It was too large a percentage of their overall net worth. So I couldn't even recommend it because it wasn't suitable for them. I mean, you, A, you had to be an accredited investor to even consider it. So you had to have a, a net worth uh, excluding your residence of over a million dollars. You had to earn over 200,000 a year, but you know, in order to be considered. But I had plenty of clients who would have liked to have thrown a thousand bucks, 5,000 bucks at the hedge fund, but they couldn't do it. And I had to tell them, unfortunately, you can't do it. Now that particular fund returned 10 times your money. So yeah, that would have been fine for someone to put in five grand and make 50 grand, but the US government made it impossible. Now, Obviously, all of the private placements we did didn't work out that way. In fact, more of them uh, uh, went bad. I had private placements where they went to zero. But here again, I think the government did harm because in order to get into the private placement, somebody had to do $50,000 and maybe somebody really didn't want to do that much, but they had to stretch it because that was the only way they can get in. Maybe they would have preferred to do twenty five grand. But because of the government regulations limiting the number of participants, we had to make the minimum at 50000 And maybe a guy speculated with a little bit more than he wanted to and then ended up losing more than he would have had he been allowed to invest a smaller amount of money. And of course, if we didn't have all these rules and regulations around private placements, we could do a lot more of them. 
And then people could have a more diversified portfolio. So instead of doing one private placement for 50 grand, you could do 10 for 5,000. That's not even possible now because of government regulations. But without all these government regulations, it would be really easy to do these private placements and we could have a very low bar and then that would level the playing field. Then the little guy would be able to see the same type of opportunities as the big guys. But because of all this government regulation, the best opportunities are reserved to the biggest investors and the little guy never gets a chance. And here's like another just recent example. This happens to me all the time. And I think I'm a relatively knowledgeable investor. I mean, I'm a professional, I'm licensed, right? But there's a lot of things the US government won't let me do. For example, I own a lot of stocks in my portfolio and once in a while, one of them gets uh, taken over. I had one that got taken over uh, last year. Uh, I, it was a Swedish company that I owned and another Swedish company bought them out and I sold some, uh, but held the majority. And I just want, you know, I just wanted to let it ride. I had a huge profit and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to let it ride with the acquirer. It was no longer a value stock. We owned it for our accounts. So, you know, we kind of got out because, you know, the new company was much more expensive, but I took, you know, my original investment off the table and I let my winnings ride. At least I thought I did. And I was watching the stock go up and, you know, then all of a sudden the stock that I owned, uh, you know, it's not trading anymore, but I still haven't got the new shares. And I was like, well, where are my shares? So I called up operations. I want to know when I was going to get the stock in the new company. And then I found out, much to my chagrin, that I wasn't going to get it. Because I was an American citizen, I wasn't eligible to receive the new shares. So I was supposed to sell those shares. And if I wanted to get the stock, sell those shares, get cash, and then buy the new company. Of course, that would have run up my cost because I would have had to incur two commissions. I mean, obviously not as much as the average guy because I mean, I, I would use my own BD so I wouldn't charge myself other than my own costs, but you still have to, you know, cross the spread, right? I got to sell the bid. I got to buy the offer, but I didn't even realize I had to do that. I just thought I would wait and get the new stock, but I can't because they didn't want to pay the money to register the offering in the US, even though I could have bought the stock if I wanted to, why can't I get the stock? I wasn't allowed. The government for my own interest protected me from getting these shares. Now the shares are way up since I found this out. I don't own them and I'm not even gonna get my cash. It's gonna take a year or two because I'm now I'm frozen. I own the stock that no longer trades and I can't do anything with it. And I found out that according to Swedish law, eventually I'm gonna get cash but I don't even know how much. I'm not even sure what price I'm going to get, but it's going to be a much lower price than what the stock is currently worth. So thanks to the government, I missed out on that opportunity. And you know, another opportunity I've missed out on many occasions has to do with rights offerings, right? I own these foreign stocks and sometimes they issue rights where they allow current shareholders to buy more shares at a discount to the market. And then those rights typically trade because if you don't want to buy them at a discount, you can sell that right to somebody else and you get some money. Well, most of the time this happens, I am ineligible to participate. And the same with all of our clients, right? Because the issuing companies don't want to pay the money to register the offering in the US through the SEC. So I don't get to participate. I can't sell the right. I can't exercise the right. So I have to watch it expire worthless in my account. Now, what happens is some foreigner who's lucky enough not to live in America ends up getting to take up the rights that I am not allowed to exercise. And I just give up on that money. 
right? Money that I would have earned, but the government protected me from making that money. Supposedly, right, I'm not smart enough, right? The, the company needs to be forced to register these shares that I already own anyway for my protection, but because it's so expensive, they don't register them, and now I'm not allowed to get it. And you know, what is really frustrating too is sometimes when it's a right that U.S. shareholders are allowed to uh, participate in and we own it in a brokerage account, right? Let's say one of our customers owns something and it's going to expire, right? You have to exercise it or sell it within a certain amount of time. And if you don't, then uh, you lose the money, right? Well, if it's in a brokerage account, right? A managed account, we could do whatever we want. But if it's in a brokerage account, let's say the broker tries to call the customer and the customer's not there, right? The customer's on a vacation, right? Now, the rep has to say, well, hey, you know, you got to call me back, right? Let's say there's a certain amount of time. And obviously, clearly the customer wants to sell the rights at a minimum and get the cash, right? Maybe he wants to exercise, uh, but at a minimum he would sell because let's say he can sell the rights and get $500. But if he lets the rights expire worthless, he gets nothing. Now, maybe he wants to exercise the rights and get more stock. We don't know if we don't talk to him. But we know the one thing the customer doesn't want to do is let the rights expire worthless and miss out on $500. Now, you would think that if we can't get a hold of the client, we could at least act in the customer's best interest and sell the rights and put the $500 into his account. We can't do that. If we can't get a hold of the client and get his permission to sell the rights and get the $500, we have to sit there and watch the $500 rights expire worthless. That is U.S. securities laws. That's how they work, right? I mean, and, and there's so many examples of how the U.S. government is passing these rules and regulations that specifically hurt the very people they want to help. And now they're going to use this situation to impose even more onerous rules and regulations that are going to run up the costs even higher for little people or smaller investors to trade. And of course, it's going to end up costing them even more in the form of a lower quality of service and a higher transaction cost. The last thing I want to talk about, though, in today's podcast is this new bill that has been introduced, I guess, by by the squad. Uh, and this is about it's the Stop Cheaters Act and make the rich pay their fair share, right? As if the rich are not already paying more than their fair share. But this is really a soak the rich bill. And I'm reading this press release and I'm going to read a little bit from this press release about this bill, right? Here. And, and I mean, you should read the whole thing. It's just unbelievable class warfare, uh, you know, antagonistic to the rich. But here, thanks to over a decade of underfunding, the IRS in the current state is no match for the amount of criminal tax evasion being committed by the top 1%. And this is actually a quote. Now they're quoting this guy who's the chairman of the Patriotic Millionaires, big democratic organization. We've almost reached the point where the rich and powerful can simply decide not to pay their taxes and face no consequences for their misbehavior. By giving the IRS the tools it needs to properly tackle wealthy criminal tax evasion, the Stop Cheaters Act will finally hold millionaires and billionaires to the same standard as normal, hardworking taxpayers. Pure BS. Then it goes down and says this. IRS budget cuts have decimated the agency's ability to ensure that the wealthy individuals and large corporations are paying the taxes they owe, stacking the deck even more in favor of the wealthy and powerful and draining hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue. All right. 
This is some guy, a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. And here is a quote from uh, the congressman that introduced this bill. Quote, this is, a, this is a congressman saying this. Stop Cheaters Act provides additional resources and tools to crack down on tax dodging by millionaires and large corporations, enabling the agency to better serve ordinary, honest taxpayers. It's an important step toward economic, social, and racial justice and and an economy that works for all Americans. I mean, first of all, what is racism? How is it racial, right? Of course, I guess it's racial because more rich people are white than black. So this is going to help stamp out racism by holding these rich white guys accountable. But the biggest irony of this whole thing is the idea that the tax cheating is rampant among millionaires and billionaires. It's not. It's actually far more rampant among the ordinary Americans that they think are so honest and law-abiding, right? When you are really, really rich, you're not cheating on your taxes. I mean, you are using the loopholes in the law to mitigate your taxes to as low as possible, but you're not cheating. I mean, Donald Trump, right, it was very famous. He had all this income and he didn't pay any taxes. The vast majority of the reason was not because he was cheating on his taxes. He was utilizing the tax code to the best of his Ability And yes, his wealth enables him to hire the best accountants who know the best way to exploit the loopholes that are in the tax code that were put in there by these congresswomen. They are not cheating. It's not worth it for them. They're the ones that are getting audited. The people who are not getting audited at all, the people who are cheating constantly are middle class Americans. I mean, cheating there is far more rampant than uh, among the millionaires and billionaires. I mean, there's an old expression that the income tax created more cheaters than golf. And it did. I mean, how many Americans get some cash income that they don't report? I mean, most millionaires and billionaires, they don't earn any cash income. All their income is upfront, right? It's not, it's not in cash. The people who are getting cash are ordinary Americans, people that are maybe earning 30, 40, 50, 60, $70,000 a year. They get some of their income in cash. Do you think they're reporting all that income? No, I mean, I'm here in Puerto Rico. There are a lot of businesses, they'll only take cash. They won't take a credit card. You think they're reporting that? Of course not. That's why they want cash. In fact, a lot of times if you have a service, somebody comes to your house, right? A plumber comes to your house. If you ever say to that guy, hey, is there a discount if I pay you in cash? They always say, yes, of course, I'll give you a 20% discount. Why are they giving you a discount for paying in cash? Because they're not going to report the income. That's why, you know, you get somebody that wins some money, uh, you know, playing poker with his friends. Are they reporting that on their tax returns? Of course not. I mean, they're supposed to, but they're not doing it. I mean, people are inflating their deductions all the time, right? What about charitable giving? I mean, you know, you don't need a receipt, I think, for charitable gifts for less than $5,000. I mean, somebody says, oh, I, I, I gave away some money to charity, or maybe they exaggerate the value of the used clothing they gave to Goodwill, or who knows? I mean, everybody is inflating this. And even the accountants that people use, you know, who are making $50,000, $100,000 a year, if they're using an accountant and not doing themselves, they'll even tell you, look, these are the guidelines. I mean, as long as your, you know, charitable deductions are not above a certain amount, no one's going to care. As, as long as the expenses that you claim were business expenses, not reimbursed from your employer, as long as it's below a certain amount, no one's going to care. I mean, that's where all the cheating is because those are the people who actually need to cheat. I mean, I'm not blaming them. 
uh, for trying to get by because the tax rates are so high and the only way they can get by is to cheat on their taxes. And, you know, if you are cheating on your taxes and you're inflating your deductions and, you know, you're not reporting some of your cash income and maybe you're significantly reducing your tax obligation, maybe you would have owed $10,000, but by cheating, you only owe $7,000 and you end up saving $3,000. That's a lot of money. I mean, that's a lot of money to you uh, relative to your income. And that's a huge part of your uh, tax bill. I mean, if you're rich, if you're making tens of millions or hundreds of millions, I mean, is it worth it to cheat a little bit? Of course not. The amount of cheating that you could do is so tiny, it wouldn't even be worth getting caught. No, no, no. You don't have to cheat when you're that rich. You just use the tax code to limit your taxes. So if the Democrats, if they really want to crack down on millionaires and billionaires who don't pay enough taxes, they need to change the tax code. They don't need to give the IRS more money to do more audits because you know what's going to happen? They're going to audit these millionaires and billionaires and it's going to turn out that they're not cheating, right? And so what are they going to do? They're then going to turn their attention to average taxpayers. That's what's happening. We're loading up this gun, right? The government is convincing the taxpayers to support giving the IRS like $100 billion to hire all sorts of uh, IRS agents. And supposedly, they're only going to audit the millionaires and billionaires. Well, you know what's going to happen? When, if, when they find out that these millionaires and billionaires, who are already being audited anyway, when they audit them and they don't get nearly as much money as they think, because the reality is the taxes are being filed honestly. I mean, are there some millionaires and billionaires who are cheating? Sure. I mean, and, and is it possible they'll find some of that money? Yeah, they might, right? But the majority of the money that they're not paying in taxes, they are legally avoiding those taxes. And so the IRS isn't going to get a nickel. But what they are going to end up doing is harassing a lot of people, a lot of uh, employers who fall into this millionaire category who are now getting regularly audited every single year instead of maybe every other year, or every third year. Now they're going to get audited every year and maybe the audits are going to be even more involved and more extensive. Well, now they're just going to have to spend more of their time dealing with audits and less time running their businesses. And maybe some of these people will say, screw it. I don't even want to run a business here. I'm leaving or I'm going to retire, right? So we're going to end up punishing the people who are running small businesses, providing goods and services and employing people, we're going to make it a lot less enjoyable and a lot harder and a lot more expensive for them to do it by harassing the hell out of them for nothing. And then, of course, the IRS is going to end up cracking down on the average American. And that's the reason, by the way, no American wants to be audited, right? The reason that Americans don't want to be audited is because they're cheating, that's why they're afraid the IRS is going to find out about the income that they didn't report. They're afraid the IRS is going to disallow some of their BS deductions, right? That weren't really business deductions. And they're going to end up being hit with a higher tax plus interest and penalties, right? This whole idea that it's the rich people who are the criminals who are evading their taxes, yet the average guy is just happily paying every little penny they owe, completely honest, not cheating at all. I mean, that is the biggest crock, right? And again, I don't blame a lot of people who are struggling uh, if the only way they can get by is to send less money to the government, you know, but don't claim that the only people who are doing that are the millionaires and the billionaires. And by the way, you know, I mean, my returns that I file 
are squeaky clean. I mean, obviously, especially now in Puerto Rico, I mean, there's no reason for me to try to avoid any taxes because my rate is so low. But even before I got here, I mean, my, my tax returns were squeaky clean. I was afraid, given who my dad was, given my high profile. I mean, my, my return, uh, I mean, I paid over 40% of my income in taxes. I had like no deductions. Right? My actual return was pretty small until I started to get involved with all these international enterprises. And then that really ran up uh, the cost of filing because it became so complicated. But as far as the regular 1040 part of my return, I hardly had any deductions. I mean, I didn't deduct anything really because I was just, I wanted to be as clean as possible because I just felt that I would be a target. And I actually didn't get uh, audited uh, a, a whole hell of a lot. And maybe it's because I paid so much taxes. They were probably thinking, what's the point of auditing this guy? I mean, he's paying such a large amount of taxes. We're probably not going to get any money out of him. I mean, we can't get much more. So uh, maybe we'll spend our resources someplace else. In fact, I remember one time I did have an audit and it was a big audit. It took a lot of time. Of course, my accountants did most of it. And at the end of the day, they got nothing. They, they're like, oh, okay, this guy. I mean, I didn't even have to pay an extra nickel. I mean, my tax return was exactly right. Nothing got disallowed. Uh, everything was fine because there was really nothing to disallow. I hardly had any deductions. But what they're trying to do is create the false impression that rich people are evil, they're bad, they're cheating. And all we have to do is send IRS agents out uh, and now all of a sudden there's going to be all this new money that's going to be rolling in because finally we're going to make these rich tax cheats pay their fair share. They're already paying way more than their fair share. And again, like everything the government does, this is going to backfire. And what's going to happen is they're really going to turn up the heat on middle-class Americans who are only getting by because they're cheating on their taxes. And now they're probably going to get caught and have to pay even more taxes. And when it comes to businesses, it's the small businesses that are doing the most cheating. You know, the major corporations that they're talking about, again, they're not cheating. I mean, it's in nobody's interest in a corporate structure to be on the hook for cheating on the taxes. And of course, major corporations don't have to cheat. The tax code is written in such a way that they can avoid a significant amount of tax so long as they structure their affairs a certain way. So they have an army of accountants and tax professionals to help them minimize the amount of taxes that they pay. Sure, it costs a lot, but they save even more. And so there's nothing for an audit to uncover. The real payday is going to be in auditing the small business owners who really are probably cheating on their taxes just to get by. It's probably one of the only reasons that some of these small businesses are able to survive is that they're not paying all the taxes that they're supposed to be paying. They are inflating deductions. They are maybe putting some of their personal deductions on their business. And maybe some of the income that they earn in cash is not being reported. And so maybe if the IRS really cracks down on some of these small businesses, they'll put a lot of these businesses out of business. And how is that going to benefit the economy? How is that going to benefit their workers? You know, when you sick the IRS on your boss, sometimes you end up losing your job. You got to remember that the whole way the U.S. government sold the American public on the income tax in the first place was as a tax to soak the rich. It was for the Carnegies, the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts. That's who was supposed to pay the income tax. It was actually supposed to result in lower taxes on the middle class. They were going to repeal tariffs and replace them with the income tax. Average people paid tariffs. 
We were honest about it back then. Donald Trump pretended that the Chinese paid the tariffs, but American politicians around the time of the income tax, they were honest and at least about who paid the tariffs. And they said, hey, it's average Americans who pay the tariffs in the form of higher prices. If we can just soak the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts and the Carnegies with a tax that's only going to affect the millionaires, well, we can reduce taxes on average Americans by getting rid of the tariffs. Well, now these politicians are telling us, don't worry, this new uh, bill is not going to cost anything. We're just going to go after the tax cheating billionaires and corporations, and it's not going to cost average taxpayers a penny. Well, as I said, average taxpayers are about to pay up because the gun that the middle class is being conned into allowing the U.S. government to load is going to end up being pointed right at them. Thank you.